be holiness, every sound you hear will be sounds about God, of worship toward God, that everything will go in that direction. And that is every pot, every cooking pot, every family in Jerusalem will uh, be at peace with God. Now look around today, as I just said, and you don't see much peace, and you don't see much holiness, you don't see much about God anywhere, because He is denied, and they're even pushing worshiping the earth and Satan instead of God very hard. So my question then is, how do we get from here to there? How do we get to the end of Zechariah 14 from where we sit today? And this may seem like a strange thing at first, but I want to take you back to the first book of Kings. Uh, this is ancient history, and it's back in the uh, white pages in your Bible. I refer to those pages that you seldom go to, and they don't have many marks on them. Uh, they don't have many scriptural references, or, or they're not tied with other scriptures. They're kind of kind of white back here. Oh, before I... I, I was talking about what's going on in the world and and uh, that announcement about John and about President Trump, but I forgot to mention a couple other things. Tonight is Monday night, and uh, there's homemade ice cream and snacks beginning at 5 p.m. here. Tomorrow. Oh, that's tomorrow. When I get back-to-back Sabbaths, I do every time. <laughs> this is Monday. I know, but I mean in here. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, dinner at your place tonight. That's true. Monday night, whatever that is, there'll be uh, snacks and homemade ice cream here and board games available and so on, kind of a social get-together beginning at 5. And Tuesday, whenever that is, uh, we're supposed to go up to Zion for a service at 11 in the morning. Uh, you all, I think, pretty well know where we go, up to the little park there above the city complex on Lyon Boulevard, up toward uh, the amphitheater. And uh, hopefully we won't run into any uh, people there that are demanding that we wear masks and so on, but uh, we'll we'll risk that and, and go with it. So 11 o'clock up at the park at Zion, and I was asked to take account. Uh, there have been people in past years when we've gone up there who volunteered to buy us lunch. Uh, we've generally gone to the Majestic, and I heard a rumor earlier, a couple, three months ago, that it was being closed down and a gymnasium was being put in there, a fitness center. But apparently that didn't go through. And the people that run the fairly new Chuck Wagon restaurant there in Leverkin have taken it over, and it's still open for dining. So uh, there are those who will provide free lunch. There is no free lunch. Somebody has to pay for it, but if it's free to us, I'm in. So uh, I'd like to get a count so we could make a reservation with the Majestic of how many would like to go to lunch up there after we have our service in Zion. Could I see those hands? 
Let's see. I can't see around the corner, but I know uh, that's okay. Okay, one. That'll be the same offer that we made last year. I'll pick up lunch. I I see. You got it, Journal? About 20. What's that? I'm going to pay for lunch like we did last year. Well, I, that's what I heard yes. via rumor. No, it's going to be confirmed. But I'm hearing it right from the man himself. Yeah. <laughs> from the horse. <laughs> I, I didn't say that. I, I just hesitated. No, no, you didn't have to. I'm from Texas. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, are you back to First Kings yet? Uh, let's go there after that intervention. What's that? A Wednesday dinner at 6 o'clock. Uh, yeah, bring potluck. The prime rib, the meat is provided. You've got a prime rib ready for Wednesday evening, but sign up for other things to complement it. Now are you in Kings? Okay. Now this, the setting here is at the end of David's life. He lived 70 years. And this is just prior to his dying. He's old and stricken in years. And he they had him covered well because he got no heat. He, he had the cold chills and he couldn't get warm. So they sought a young virgin to come and stand before the king. And she was to hug him and try to get some heat into him, keep him warm. So they went out the land and found... Abishag, and brought her to the king. She was a lovely girl, and she loved the king and took care of him, but uh, they did not have a sexual relationship. She was just there to comfort him, to help him, to try to help keep him warm, and so on. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, one of David's uh, wives, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared him chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. So David had had difficulties throughout his reign from various enemies. Uh, he had fought in a lot of wars against the Israel, the enemies of Israel. And his reign had been pretty tumultuous in many ways. Uh, even before he reigned, he had a lot of tumult and trouble with Saul. And once that was settled and he was uh, made king, he still had enemies within and without and uh, went to war a great deal of his reign. And here, one of his sons has decided the king is about to die. I will take over. Now, this is common among governments of men. And in churches, and it happened in Worldwide Church of God as well, where there were enemies there all along who suddenly surfaced and decided they would take over and may have even killed Herbert Armstrong in order to take over. Uh, the Takachas were not good people, and I think their name takes them back to being Edomites, as did Stan Raiders, uh, Ashkenazi Jews, and... You know what Obadiah says about the Edomites, among other scriptures. 
So within the church, we also had enemies who were there who acted like friends, spoke well to the face, uh, but were doing all kinds of things behind the back. And I think Stan Rader was very much involved in sicking uh, the state of California on the church, trying to get the Armstrongs or Mr. Armstrong out and himself in. And a lot of chicanery in politics was going on there. Well, we come back here in ancient history, and we find the same kind of thing going on in David's reign. We find the same thing going on in the United States government right now, where the president is about to go out after four years, and an election is coming, and all kinds of chicanery are going on with threats against his life that are public, as well as things going on behind the scenes, and perhaps now hitmen out seeking to kill him at this very moment, trying to track him down, find him, and do away with him. So this is nothing new in governments and in the lives of people. But here Adonijah declared he would be king, and he conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, We'll hear about Joab here again in a minute. I'm down in verse 7. And he gathered men about him to try to do what he wanted done, that is, make him king. Uh, But the mighty men, into verse 8, which belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. So there was a split here of loyalties, some to David and some to Adonijah. And Adonijah slew sheep and oxen and fat cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. So he wanted all his brothers, sons of David, to come and recognize him. And also he invited the king's servants to come. But Nathan the prophet and Beniah, and the mighty men, and Solomon his brother, he called not. So, of the ones he invited, he left certain ones out, including Solomon. Wherefore Nathan spoke to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, David's wife, and his mother. Now, there's a conspiracy working here, whether you believe in conspiracies or not. Uh, Adonijah was leading this conspiracy to take over the kingship. So he went to Bathsheba. He wanted to enlist the help of his mother. He said, have you... Oh, no, this is Nathan that went to Bathsheba at this point. Uh, The mother of Solomon saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah the son of Haggith does reign, and David our Lord knows it not? So it was a man uh, faithful to David who went to Bathsheba. Now therefore come, let me, I pray you, give you counsel that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Nathan recognized that if Adonijah got in charge, he would kill Solomon because Solomon was the rightful heir to the throne and he would have to be gotten rid of. And Bathsheba, he realized, would be on Solomon's side. That was her son. So Bathsheba would also have been killed. Just as Pelosi and others have said that they're going to kill every trumper around. They're going to have a massacre. They're planning it. 
already been stated publicly, in fact, that if the Democrats get in control, there will be a purge. So it's being set up kind of like this was. So he said, go and get you into King David and say to him, did not you, my lord, O king, swear unto your handmaid, saying, Assuredly Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? Why then does Adonijah reign? And he says, Behold, while you're still talking with the king, I will also come in after you and confirm your words. So he says, We'll hit David with a double whammy here. You go in as his trusted wife and tell him what's going on. And then while you're still there, I'll come in and confirm it and reaffirm it. So Bathsheba went into the king in his chamber, and the king was very old and cold. And Abishag was there with him. And Bathsheba bowed down and did obeisance to the king. And the king said, what do you want? When she came like that and bowed before him, he knew she had a request. She said to him, My Lord, you swore by the Lord your God to your handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. So she reminds him formally. And now, behold, Adonijah reigns. And now, my Lord, the king, you know it not. And he's slain oxen, he's called all the sons of the king, and the priest, and Joab, the captain of the host. So Joab had been with David in the past, and now Joab was aligning against David's request with Adonijah. And Solomon he hasn't called. And you, my lord, O king, the eyes of all Israel are upon you, that you should tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. The populace was in confusion. They knew about Solomon, and now Adonijah was saying, I'm king, and some of David's servants were there saying the same thing, including Joab. So everybody was confused, <laughs> kind of like it was in the church and kind of like it is in our nation today, and the confusion grows day by day, because we don't know how this is all going to come out. So, they're frustrated. Otherwise, it shall come to pass, when my lord the king shall sleep with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon shall be counted offenders. Trumpers. And lo, while she yet talked with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, saying, Behold, Nathan is here. And he came before the king and bowed himself and Nathan said, My Lord King, have you said, Adonijah shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne? For he has gone down this day, and has slain oxen, and made sacrifices, and is acting like the king. And he called the king's sons, the captains of the host, exact same story Bathsheba had just given, and Abiathar the priest, that would be to anoint him king, and behold, they eat and drink before him and say, God save King Adonijah. Is there division in the land? <laughs> I'd say so. 
But me, even me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, has he not called? We weren't invited to this. We're here supporting you, and they don't want us there at all. Is this thing done by my lord the king, and you have not showed it to your servant? Who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after them? After him. So, he leaves it as a question. Then verse 28, King David answered and said, Call me Bathsheba. And she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore and said, As the Lord lives that has redeemed my soul out of all distress. Read the Psalms. He was relieved of his distress from time to time and through his life. God saw distress come on him, and he would relieve it and help him and encourage him. Even as I swear to you by the Lord God of Israel, saying, Assuredly, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne in my stead. Even so will I certainly do this day. Now, he was about to die, but this really stirred him up. <laughs> he felt very strongly and emotionally about it. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the earth and did reverence to the king and said, Let my lord King David live forever. He knew and she knew he was about to die, but that's what you say to kings. And King David said, Call me Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So he knew those whom he could trust, and Bathsheba and Nathan had both just said, these are still with you. So that's the ones he called. The king also said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord, and cause Solomon, my son, to ride upon my own mule, and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there, king over Israel, and blow you with the trumpet, and say, God save King Solomon. Then you shall come after him, that he may come and sit upon my throne. For he shall be king in my stead, and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Made it clear, both uh, parts of Israel. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, answered the king and said, Amen. The Lord God of my lord the king say so too. As the eternal has been with my lord the king, even so be he with Solomon, and make his throne greater than the throne of my lord king David. So he says to David, I'm going to ask God to make him even greater than you were. Now that didn't tick David off. This was his son. That's good news to him. So Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet and Benaiah and the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and caused Solomon to ride upon King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. Now that was symbolic even in itself. You didn't dare get on the king's mule or his horse or ride in his chariot, or have his armor, or any of those things that pertain to the king without permission. 
And any breach of that would have been a serious and death-defying act. So David had said, be sure he rides my mule. I want everybody to see that. So Zadok, the priest, took a horn of oil out of the tabernacle and anointed Solomon, and they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, God save King Solomon. So this cleared up the confusion among the Israelites. And Adonijah was on his way out uh, when this happened. And Adonijah and all the guests that were with him heard it as they had made an end of eating. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, Wherefore is this noise of the city being in an uproar? So David had everybody go to the city where Adonijah was, not to Jerusalem, but to Gihon, because he wanted Adonijah and those with him to see, acknowledge, and be aware of what was happening. So Joab was there. Remember that name again. Why is it in an uproar? All the people were cheering and laughing and making great joy and noise. And while he yet spoke, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abithiar, the priest, came, and Adonijah said to him, Come in, for you are a valiant man, and bring good tidings. I'm the king. I know you're about to bring me good news. Right, I hear the people cheering. Must be good news for me. Jonathan answered and said to Adonijah, Truly our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent with him Zadok and Nathan and Benaiah and the Kerithites and the Pelethites, and they've caused him to ride upon the king's mule. That was part of the announcement too. And Zadok and Nathan have anointed him king, and they are come up from their rejoicing so that the city rang again, this is the noise that you have heard. And Solomon sits on the throne of the kingdom. And moreover, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, God, make the name of Solomon better than your name, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself upon the bed. The king also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which has given one to sit on my throne this day, my eyes even seeing it. End of announcement. Scary stuff for Adonijah. And for those with him, if you will notice next. All the guests that were with Adonijah were afraid and rose up and went every man his way. <laughs> they scattered like fleas off a dead dog. Because they knew what would happen to Adonijah now. After a rebellion like this. And Adonijah feared because of Solomon and arose and went and caught hold on the horns of the altar. You weren't supposed to be able to be slain if you were hanging on to the horns of the altar at the tabernacle. But he knew. And he was afraid. And it was told Solomon, saying, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for lo, he's caught hold on the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not slay his servant with the sword. 
And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, there shall not an hair of him uh, fall to the earth. But if wickedness shall be found in him, he shall die. So Solomon sent, they brought him down from the altar, and he came and bowed himself to King Solomon. And Solomon said, Go to your house. So he didn't kill him right there. He says, Go to your house. Had he killed him right there, Adonijah's fear would have ended. Uh, it didn't. <laughs> he went to his house, and he knew what he had done. And Solomon had said, if you be a faithful, honest, true man, you won't die. And Adonijah knew better. He knew he hadn't been. So he went to his house, still scared half to death. Now the days of David drew near that he should die, and he charged Solomon his son, saying. Now we're really getting into some important information here about how to establish a kingdom. Here you have confusion at the end of one kingdom and the beginning of the next. And David, very experienced, having ruled Israel for 40 years, is going to pass along to Solomon some advice on how to begin his kingship. If you want to be established, Solomon, is basically what this is about, here's what you need to do. So anytime we're facing a change in government, anytime we're facing crisis, there are certain things that have to be done in order to establish Something new. Now, some of those in the U.S. government today are trying to establish something new, and they know certain things have to be done in order to accomplish that. Now, Adonijah had a plan to kill Solomon and Bathsheba, get his enemies out of the way so that he could reign without having anybody opposing him, and especially anybody who had a right to the throne. They had to go away. Now here's David's advice to his son. I go the way of all earth. Be you strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. No soy boy, no meow meow. Uh, be strong and show yourself a man. Stand up. Be strong. That's the first words of advice. You yourself have to be a certain way. You can't be a molly coddler. You can't be too soft. You have to stand up and claim what is rightfully yours as king and do whatever is necessary to make sure that that is established. His enemy was still not dead. Adonijah was at home. And keep the charge of the eternal your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies. It is written in the law of Moses that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn yourself. It's written in Scripture that you can succeed, Solomon, 
And you can be everything you need to be if you'll be strong and stand up, take responsibility, and follow God. Now, we are up against the Scriptures where God says we have to take charge and we have to obey Him and we have to build a ladder temple and we have to be witnesses to the whole earth that He is God. We're facing the same thing. The nation is facing the same thing. Will you survive or will you come apart and be destroyed? Christ himself is going to establish the kingdom. We read about it in Zechariah 14. And he must do certain things in order for that kingdom to be established. And as we go through the rest of this, in First Kings, we're going to see the things that we must do. We're going to see the things that Christ must do. And we're going to see the things that our nation won't do. Because they're not going to follow this. They're not going to follow anything in this book. And God has already said, don't pray for this nation because they will not repent. They will not obey me. And they will be destroyed. He'll send them to their home, but it'll be underground. <laughs> you know, these people, some of them, they want to dig tunnels and they want to go underground and hide themselves and be safe. Well, Christ's going to plant them underground. They, they got the right place to go, but they don't understand exactly how it's going to occur, and it's not going to be quite like they thought it would be. Okay? The same thing... If you go and read the book of Joshua, I could be there just as easily as here. God told Joshua as they were to cross the river and go into the promised land. He told Joshua, read the words of Moses every day and you will have good success, was what he was told. Obey God and serve Him and drive your enemies out of the land. Get rid of the enemies. Because if you allow the enemies to remain, they will be thorns in your side forevermore. Now, they had partial success. God said, I'll drive them out ahead of you. But he had instructed them to kill some and to kill them completely. Every man among them, the Malachites, didn't do it. They came back to be a thorn in their flesh. So, any time you see God establishing something, whether it be through Solomon, through Joshua, through the end-time leaders here, or Christ himself, the MO, the modus operandi, the process is the same. It's always the same. So, his first advice was stand up, have a spine, secondarily, Serve the eternal God with all your heart and be reminded of what He says. Do what He says. Well, that's a lot of good advice right there. So far, we're on the same page, aren't we? We need to stand up, be strong. Doesn't He tell the end time church? Be strong, be of good courage, 
Yeah, same things. Fear not, he also tells us, and work. Four things he tells us several times. Be strong, be of good courage, fear not, and work. Well, why would you fear anyway? Because there are things to fear. (laughs) There are things out there that are going to kill us, and Satan will do it, if at all possible, and he will use the Assyrian army and others to do so, as well as his demons. So, we are in great jeopardy unless somehow, some way, we're protected. As was Joshua, and as was Solomon. Great jeopardy from his brother and his friends who weren't friends suddenly when the plot was discovered. So, be strong and serve God. That the, verse 4, that the eternal may continue his word which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart, do we read that in Jeremiah, I think 31? Seek me with all your heart and you will find me and I will be found of you may not be 31, but it's right there from 27 to 31, right in that area. Walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, and there shall not fail you, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. God had given David that promise earlier in his life. And now he's saying, I'm dying. Here's the promise God gave me. Now I'm depending on you to serve God and be sure that God's promise to me gets fulfilled. You have your part to do. Then he gives some some more advice, which goes along with some things that I've actually already said. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zeruah, did to me, and what he did to the two captains of the hosts of Israel, to Abner, whom he killed, and to Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace. So Joab created violence and war even when there was peace. And what he had done in one case was, you remember the story of Absalom, who was the son of David, and he was writing, he had long hair, which God says men should not have, And nature should teach you that. And the story of Absalom is a real good lesson in that particular thing. Because he was riding his horse and his hair was flopping in the air and he got caught in the crotch of a tree. And the horse went on and Absalom hung there. Well, he didn't die. He was just hanging there. And somebody came and told him. And Joab says, well, did you kill him? Well, no, I wouldn't lift a hand against the king's son. So Joab went, and he thrust three darts into Absalom as he was still hanging there. And then he had ten men beat and stab and pierce him to be sure he was good and dead. And then a man said, well, I'll go tell David that his son is dead and what has happened here. Joab says, oh, no, don't tell him. I'll send you to the king on some mission at another time, but don't take this. Because Joab knew the king David would not be real happy if he heard how Absalom really died. 
Not just by hanging there, but by being killed hanging there. Helpless. So Joab had been in David's kingdom and had been a, a, an integral part of those around David, part of his court. And yet even as he was part of the court and gave David lip service and acted like he was a faithful servant, he went behind David's back, talked behind David's back, put David down to others and tried to make more enemies for David. And then he even committed acts of war behind David's back while still being a so-called faithful member of his court. Just as we had in worldwide, just as we have had in the U.S. government from some. They're liars and two-faced. And they're not faithful at all. Does somebody really have your best interests in mind if they'll be faithful and true and say good things to your face and then say bad things behind your back? Can they be called faithful and true? No, not at all. And Joab wasn't. So, David's giving some advice about Joab. Now, he could have killed Joab at any point. Could have had people fall on him and whack his head off. But he hadn't done it. He had put up with a certain amount of unfaithfulness and chicanery and even the murder of his own son. And he hadn't reacted in a wrong way. Now, David was a man after God's own heart, right? And he was a man of war, and he liked to kill. He liked war. And yet... In spite of all that, David had a kindness and a love and a concern and a merciful heart so that even someone like Joab he had preserved and hadn't done away with and had put up with him. Sometimes we have to be merciful. We have to be kind. God's put up with Satan for quite some time now. Now, that's not going to continue beyond a certain point, but he's put up with him for a certain amount of time. And his throne cannot be established until Satan is put away, till he's gotten rid of, till he's not around. Now, David saw dangers here. He had put up with Joab and been merciful and allowed him to continue, even though he knew what he was dealing with. We have to do the same thing sometimes with people. But he said, Solomon, you know what he did. And Abner was a faithful man whom Joab had slain as well. So he says in verse 6, Do therefore according to your wisdom, and let not his whore head go down to the grave in peace. He says, use your own wisdom, but I'm telling you right now, don't let that man live out his life and die in peace. Because it's going to be trouble for you. But show kindness to the sons of Barzilla, the Gileadite, and let them be of those that eat at your table. For so they came to me when I fled because of Absalom, your brother. 
So he says there were some that were faithful. Joab wasn't one of them. You need to get rid of him. But these others were faithful to me, and you ought to be sure to bring them to your inner court and make them part of your retinue and let them eat at your table, because they are faithful people. Now, David's giving him the benefit of all his experience and his dealings with certain people in his kingdom. And he wanted to be sure Solomon had a good start. So he says, keep these, get rid of that one. And behold, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, which cursed me with a grievous curse in the day when I went to Mahanim. But he came down to meet me at Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. So he said, here's a man that's been mixed. And I told him I wouldn't slay him with the sword, because he did show something good. Uh, isn't that the way of it? There's hardly anybody that's just all bad. And there's actually nobody that's all good. So then he, he dealt with one that was pretty much bad. Then he dealt with those who were faithful. Now he's telling them, here's someone with mixed reviews. I told him I wouldn't kill him, but I want to talk to you about him. Okay? Now therefore, hold him not guiltless. He says, here's somebody that's probably going to give you trouble. I didn't kill him, but watch out. For you're a wise man and know what you ought to do to him. <laughs> but then he reiterates, but his whore head bring you down to the grave with blood. He said, I didn't kill him, but if you're going to have peace in your kingdom, you better kill him. So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And he reigned forty years. Uh, verse 12, Then sat Solomon on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was established greatly. And Adonijah uh, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Come you peaceably, Question, and he said, peaceably. He said, moreover, I have somewhat to say to you. And she said, say on. And he said, you know that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel set their faces on me, that I should reign. Now, he's probably stretching that a bit when he said, all Israel set their face on me and said, you ought to be king. Bit of an exaggeration, I'd say. Howbeit the kingdom has turned about and has become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. Notice Bathsheba questioned his motives right at the beginning when he showed up. Do you come peaceably or not? Oh, yeah, I'm coming here in peace, Mommy. I, I'm here all for you, and I'm your loving son, and you need to listen to me about how wonderful I've been and how all Israel just loved me to death, and every one of them wanted me to be king. Is he ever laying it on? But the king has become my brother's, for it was from the Lord. And now I ask one petition of you, deny me not. She said, okay, let's hear it. Say on. I'm, I'm kind of reading some emotions into this because I know what her 
thought was toward Solomon and toward Adonijah. And she's saying, I uh, think I've kind of heard this before somewhere. And he said, Speak, I pray you, to Solomon the king, for he will not say you no. I'm coming to you because I know Solomon won't say no to his mommy. That he give me Abishag the Shunammite to wife. Now what do you think of that? Abishag had been chosen to come and give David comfort, to keep him warm, to see to him and bring him water or whatever, as he died. Now Adonijah had wanted to be king, and now he's saying, uh, everybody wanted me to be, Mom, but it didn't work out that way, and it was given to Solomon, but could you at least speak to Solomon and see if he'll give me Abishag to be my wife? I think there's some political intent here, don't you? It wasn't just that she was a good-looking young lady. There was some power there because of what she had been. This is <laughs> writing his Abishag was somewhat similar to writing his mule, if I might make that statement. This is something that had belonged to David and David alone. And now, here comes Adonijah claiming her. And Bathsheba said, well, I'll speak to the king for you. She didn't say, Adonijah, you're nuts. She said, okay, I'll talk to the king. I think she had a pretty good idea what the king would say. She knew Solomon. She was his mama. Bathsheba therefore went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. And the king rose up to meet her and bowed himself to her, gave deference to his mother, and sat down on his throne and caused a seat to be set for the king's mother right on his right hand. So we see what regard she was held in. Then she said, I desire one small petition of you. I pray you say me not nay. And the king said to her, Ask on, my mother, for I will not say thee nay. And she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, to wife. And king Solomon answered and said unto his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask him for the kingdom also. He saw through this in a hurry. Why didn't you just go ahead and ask that he be king and me be dead? Come on, Mom. For he is my elder brother, even for him and for Abathiar the priest and for Joab the son of Zariah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me and more also, if Adonijah have not spoken this word against his own life. He had said, be good and go to your house. Well, he went to his house, but he didn't be good. He started another plot to take over, beginning with Abishag. No doubt, Bathsheba saw through it, and she knew what the reaction would be, and the reaction came. Now, therefore, as the Lord lives which has established me and set me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me an house, as he promised Adonijah, 
shall be put to death this day. Now, is Solomon following the advice of his dad? He didn't knuckle under. He didn't bend over. He had tried to show a little mercy to Adonijah, his brother. Go home. Be good. Didn't happen. So now he stands up. He has courage. He has a spine. And he says, as the Lord lives, he's going to die. I will follow what God wants, and God gave me this kingdom, and I'm going to protect myself as king because God did it. He didn't stand on his own two feet in that sense. He said, God gave me this. Adonijah can't take it from God or from me either. And I'll kill my brother. King Solomon sent by the name of Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and fell upon him that he died. So that was the end of that. There could have been no peace in Solomon's reign had Adonijah stayed alive. Couldn't have been peace. Sometimes there are people that are going to be talking behind your back and planning and plotting. I've seen it right here on this property over and over again. Talking behind your back. Didn't God tell Ezekiel, you're speaking my words, but they're going to be around the wall, around the door, still talking about you. It, it's, it's a pattern that gets repeated over and over and over because human nature never changes. The circumstances will always be the same. And the same things have to be done in order to accomplish what needs to be done and to have peace in order for it to occur. That's why I said, how do we get from here to every pot in Jerusalem being holiness to the eternal? There's a process that has to go on. It has to occur. Interestingly, he says in verse 26, unto, unto Abiathar, the priest, said the king, Get you down to Anatoth, to your own fields, for you are worthy of death. But I will not at this time put you to death, because you bore the ark of the Lord God before David, my father, and because you have been afflicted in all wherein my father was afflicted. So Solomon thrust Abiathar from being priest to the eternal, that he might fulfill the word of the eternal, which he spoke concerning the house of Elin Shiloh. So now here was someone who also was not faithful, but he had done some good. So he says, I'm not going to kill you right now. Again, he showed mercy. He showed opportunity for repentance, opportunity to become faithful, to become trustworthy. And he told him, you go down to Anatoth and you stay there. He wasn't to leave there. Well, we'll see a little later on what happens here. How often do people who have done wrong truly repent from the heart and turn it around and do right? Adonijah didn't. Satan hasn't. 
There are people right here on this land in Anatoth, interestingly that came up right here, who have lied, who have stolen, who have filed court cases ridiculously with no cause that they can prove. There's nothing they can prove that they have filed because it didn't happen the way they say it did. But they're trying to take over this place like Adonijah was, like some of these others would have. Had an opportunity to repent, to show mercy, but they had to be removed. We're going to see some of these also. Let's go on a bit, and then we'll come back to what I'm just introduced. Verse 28, Then tidings came to Joab, for Joab had turned after Adonijah. He was there, remember, through the... And Joab fled to the tabernacle of the Eternal and caught hold on the horns of the altar. <laughs> he did the same thing Adonijah had done. He said, I was on Adonijah's side. I just saw Adonijah killed. I think I better run to the tabernacle and grab the horns. And hadn't David told him, kill Joab. Don't let him live. He'll be nothing but trouble. And it was told King Solomon that Joab was fled to the tabernacle of the Lord, and behold, he's by the altar. Then Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, fall upon him. <coughs> and Benaiah came to the tabernacle of the Lord and said to him, to Joab, Thus says the king, Come forth. And he says, No, but I will die here. And Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. So I'm not going to turn loose the horns of the altar. I'll just die right here. You're going to have to disobey the rule that you don't be killed on the horns of the altar. You're going to have to kill me right here. I'm not turning loose. So he asked Solomon, What do I do? The king said to him, do as he said. Fall upon him and bury him, that you may take away the innocent blood which Joab shed from me and from the house of my father. And the Lord will return the blood on his own head, who fell upon two men more righteous and better than he, and slew them with the sword. My father David, not knowing thereof, to wit, Abner the son of Ner, captain of the host of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jether, captain of the host of Judah. Therefore shall blood therefore return upon the head of Joab, on the head of his seed forever. But upon David and upon his seed and upon his house and upon his throne shall there be peace forever from the eternal. <coughs> Solomon just gets it said, doesn't he? There's courage. There's commitment. There's conviction. There's Honor to God. Now, Joab dying was more important to Israel than the rule about hanging onto the horns of the altar. Solomon said, no, that's what he said. Go ahead and kill him there. The blood's on his head. He won't turn loose. He gets it right there. So he went up and slew him, and he was buried in his own house in the wilderness. And the king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, 
in his room over the host. <coughs> so he took the same office that Joab had had. And Zadok the priest, the king, put in the room of Abithathar. So a change out of uh, power at the top occurred. Isn't that what new CEOs do at a company when they're appointed? Get rid of the old guys that were loyal to the former CEO. <coughs> Presidents kick the cabinet out and put a new one in. You've got to get people who are faithful and true to help you do the job you have to do. You've got to get rid of all those who are not. And the king sent and called for Shimei and said to him, Build you a house in Jerusalem. This is the one he had told to go to Anatoth and stay there. Now he calls him in again. He says, I want you to build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and don't go from there anywhere. You're under house arrest. Build you a house, stay in it, and don't you leave. For it shall be that on the day that you go out and pass over the book Kidron, you shall know for certain that you shall surely die. Your blood shall be upon your own head. I may have you killed, but I will not be the one responsible. If you get killed, it's your responsibility because you did what I told you not to do. It's on you. Shimei said to the king, the saying is good. As my lord the king has said, calls him his lord, everything you're saying, Solomon, I agree with, I'll do it. Shimei dwelt in Jerusalem many days, and it came to pass at the end of three years that two of the servants of Shimei ran away, and they told Shimei, saying, Behold, your servants be in Gath. Well, we can't have this. And Shimei rose and saddled his ass and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. And Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. And it was told Solomon that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and was come again. Solomon had people who were aware that Shimei was supposed to stay there and not leave. And when he did, word got to Solomon pretty quick. You know, word gets around. You wouldn't believe some of the things that I've heard over the years the people didn't think would get back to me. And it does. Some of it doesn't, but a lot of it does. And you know what I do with it? Most of the time, I just file it away. I file it away. Don't say anything to anybody. I just file it away. But it's there if it's ever needed. It was told Solomon... And the king sent and called Shimei and said to him, Did I not make you swear by the Lord and protested to you, saying, No for a certain on the day that you go out and walk abroad anywhere that you shall surely die? And you said to me, The word that I have heard is good. He admitted, Yeah. Why then have you not kept the oath of the eternal and the commandment that I have charged you with? So he says, God appointed me king, and through me you were told this. So it's from God. Not from me, Solomon said. It's from God. You disobeyed God. 
The king said, Moreover to Shimei, you know all the wickedness which your heart is privy to that you did to David my father. He said, You know what you've done. You know why I put you under house arrest. You remember all these things. I was trying to show you mercy and give you a chance. Therefore, the Eternal shall return your wickedness upon your own head. And King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be blessed before the Eternal forever. Your little plots, your little plans aren't going to work. God will prevail, Solomon says. So the king commanded Benaiah, again, the son of Jehoiada, which went out and fell upon him that he died. And the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. So what we see here is a series of things Solomon did that fulfilled what his father David had told him. You got enemies out here, you got to take care of them. Well, some he did immediately. Others he gave a chance. And then when they blew it, they also died. They didn't go down to their grave in peace. Let me remind you of a scripture in Haggai. Here he's talking about the latter temple and the building of the physical and spiritual temple. And he says of it in verse 9 of chapter 2, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. Now, if you'll recall in Zechariah 14, when Christ returns with his saints to finish putting down rebellion, he says their eyes will consume in their heads and their tongues will melt out of their mouths and they will die. And if any remain who will not keep the Feast of Tabernacles, who were not outwardly rebellious, but they got these things going on inside their little hearts and minds, and they refused to come up to keep the feast, no rain. No rain means ultimately no food and death. So no rain for a certain period of time, and then if they still won't come, they haven't died of famine yet, but if they still won't come, then I'll send the plague on them, and they will die. Because there will be peace in Jerusalem. And anyone who will offer any kind of resistance to peace is going to die. Is there not a proverb that says to get rid of the talebearer and the strife will cease? If there's strife, it's because there's talebearing. If there's gossip, and an undercurrent of rebellion going on, it's because there are tale-bearers who are saying evil things, nasty things, true or untrue things, because they will not follow Philippians 4, verse 8. And they will not follow what my grandmother, my mother, and my aunt understood quite clearly. If you can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything. And it happens everywhere. It's happened here. It's still happening here. 
Now, in Jerusalem and Zion here, when God brings his remnant, he said, I will bring peace to this place. His latter temple, as it is built, and his spiritual latter temple, will live in peace. It says so right here. Now, is there a process? Have we not been reading about a process? In Zechariah 14, get rid of them all. David told Solomon, get rid of them all. Let's go to Jeremiah 11. We've read this, but I think here it fits because we need to understand how we get from where we are today to where God wants us to be for the rest of this life and into, and into eternity. Here Jeremiah did not realize at a certain point that there were those who were against him. Let's pick it up in chapter 11, uh, verse 15. What has my beloved to do in my house, seeing she has worked lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. We have people here rejoicing in their court cases, which are totally unjust. The Eternal called your name a green olive tree, fair and of goodly fruit. Now, God raised up something in Anatoth which has been producing some goodly fruit. It really has. And you're part of that fruit. And of goodly fruit, with the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire upon it, and the branches of it are broken. God's church worldwide is mentioned here. And he says above here in verse 14, Don't pray for this people, or lift a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry to me for their trouble. It's a prophecy of the end time of the nation of Israel, which is right now falling apart before our very eyes, and is no nation anymore, as Isaiah 7 says, would happen. We're a divided people that could not get together to do anything, if we had to, because we're too divided and would fall into each other's throats and start killing each other before we could get together and do anything of note. That's where we are today. So this is true of that. It was true of worldwide, where it got to be a fight, and it splintered and to many, many pieces, and worldwide itself died, as Sardis, as God said it would. It died. It's gone. There's a sort of a Protestant thingy that's left of some people, but it's not Worldwide Church of God anymore. Not even name that anymore. And we'll see that this is brought down to another level, to specifically an Anatoth. Now, there was an Anatoth near Jerusalem in the old days, but this is a prophecy for the end time. All these are. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Minor Prophets... They're all about the end time. So this is an end time prophecy right here. Verse 17, For the eternal of hosts that planted you, God is the one that was behind this little group being established. 
God showed me that Zion was the important place. He showed me a lot of things. And because of the calendar, John and I had a separation. And I was not going to start another group. I was not going to. I said to my wife and others, there's enough bunches of people already. There's already three or four hundred different groups. I see no sense in me starting another one. I'm just going to go out and do my thing. Maybe I'll go back to Alaska. Maybe I'll stay in Colorado where I was at the time or whatever, where kids were. But I'm not going to start another church. And then people started calling. Said, where are you going to the feast? Well, I'd made up my mind. I was going to Zion. I'm going to Zion. And Marla had not said at the time, and I hadn't asked her, are you going with me? Because I wanted her to make up her own mind. Was she going to stay with Church of the Great God? Was she going to come with me? Did she agree with me? Was she going to go to Zion with me? We hadn't talked about it. And I wasn't going to try to make her do something that she might not want to do. I'm going to leave that entirely up to her. So I told people, I'm going to Zion. And if Marla doesn't go with me, I'm going by myself. And then she heard some of this on the phone, I suppose. And she says, I'm going with you. Well, okay. I'm, I'm on this. But then these people started saying, well, can we come? Well, I suppose you can come. And I didn't know, but maybe two families, the Whites and the Rome Hills at that time. I don't know of any others that I knew yet. I met them all after I left John. Seventy people showed up. I'm saying, where did you come from? This wasn't planned. There they were. Seventy of them. Interesting number. Next year, there were 120. Another interesting number. That's the number of saints that were left there in Jerusalem before Pentecost. Next year, 150. Maybe there were 150,000 at its biggest in worldwide. You see a progression of numbers there? And 10% of worldwide, about 15,000, more or less, might show up. Now, I don't know that there were 150,000 real members. In fact, I know there weren't because of mates that came along and grandmothers that came along and children that weren't converted. And usually any group of people, about a third of them are children. So the 8,000 of, of, of Elijah and what Paul said, 8,000 hadn't bowed their knee to Baal might be a closer number of 10% of what really was as opposed to those who might have showed up at the feast. But at any rate, 70, 120, 150, then it started going the other direction. Let's read on. We, I think we can see some of that. The eternal of hosts that planted you. How did he plant it? Well, he sent 70 people. And we had a meeting there at one point in the feast, and I said, why are you here? Do you want me to be your pastor? Didn't I say something like that, Shirley, Nelson? Al, you were there. And they said yes. 
so I thought, oh, <laughs> maybe, maybe we better do this thing. Uh, because I thought, well, God kind of sent these people out of the blue. I didn't recruit any of them. I didn't have any plan to do anything, and yet here they are, and that's what they want, and they need to be pastored. And they want to keep the calendar at the right time and keep the holy days at the right time and so on. So, I didn't want to call it anything exclusive. I chose a congregation of God. Nothing like worldwide, nothing like international, nothing like the only God-breathed group on earth that's serving Him and the only true church or the Church of Philadelphia, the only true Church of Philadelphia, or all these names that people have come up with for their exclusive, wonderful group. No, I already knew what the name of the church should be. I'd found it in Ezra. In Ezra, it called it the house of the great God. And Ezra is a type of the latter temple that's going to be built at the end time. And John Reitenbaugh had started a group called the Church of the Great God. House of the Great God, Church of the Great God, same thing. That's the proper name for the latter temple is Church of the Great God. And his hands finished, started it, and his hands will finish it. I believe that with all my heart. So I didn't want to try to compete with what I knew was to be. So I said, let's just be called a congregation of God. It's simple. It's not exclusive. It's just some of God's people. A group, of, a grouping or a bunch or a congregation of God's people. And that's all we are to this day. Because I someday intend to be a part of the house of the great God. I intend to be that. And then we will no longer be a congregation of God. <clears throat> Won't need it. Won't have it. It's only one ladder temple, not two. Just one. But God planted us. And has pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel, of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves. To provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. Those who survived Herbert Armstrong did that with Worldwide. Incense to Baal. Took on satanic, ungodly doctrines. And became just another evil, satanic, Protestant denomination. Our nation nationally, has done the same thing. And those, there are those here who have done the same thing. We went to 150, and then we started going the other direction. It's in the book. Is this any surprise? No. It's happened over and over and over again. Have we not been reading about Solomon and how it happened there? Have we not seen how when Christ tries to set up the kingdom of God Himself, that the same thing will happen. It's just inevitable. And the Eternal has given me knowledge of it, and I know it. See, 
Jeremiah lived at Anatoth. And there were people there who wanted him dead and who wanted him put in prison and wanted him gone. Now, I face the same thing right here with this little group. There are people who have accused me of murder and want me put away for life or electrocuted for killing my wife. There are people here who have accused me of grand theft auto who want me to go to jail and be away from here for that. And they've thought of everything they can think of to try to get rid of me, either have me in jail or killed. Nothing's changed. Jeremiah became aware he was preaching the truth of God, prophesying to Israel and to Judah that they were going to go into captivity. And he didn't know just how badly some people were taking that. And then God showed it. God gave me knowledge of it, and I know it. Then you showed me their doings. God showed me what they were doing, he says. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be no more remembered. So they've tried to put me in jail. They've tried to get me executed for first-degree murder, premeditated. That's the charges they would have had brought. Uh, they've accused me of making millions off of you and being unjustly enriched, which hasn't happened by any means. And they've offered me, in a deposition, $200,000 if I would pay off the land mortgage with part of it and then take 100000 myself and be gone within 30 days and take everything I wanted with me except what they wanted me to leave. <laughs> so I've, they tried to bribe me. They couldn't get me in jail. And they couldn't get me arrested. So then they tried to bribe me. So they used money to try to get me. You know what? I said yesterday, this isn't about numbers and money. We got lots fewer numbers, and that means a lot less money, and I'm still here. You know, this property's been in my name since 2002. I tried to put it in the church name, and the county said, you can't do that, uh, planning and zoning. It has to be in your name. So I put it back in my name. And then the planning and zoning thing kind of went away, and I put it back in the church name. And then we saw these lawsuits coming, so I put it back in my name, lest they win against the church. You know what I could do, brethren? I could sell you all out. I am in a position to do that. With everything except this residential part, the rest of it, you know I could divide that up into five-acre pieces and sell it, and I could split it with you. Or I could put it in my bag and take it and go away. My enemies here resent that. But you know what? Two or three million dollars doesn't mean a thing to me. It really doesn't. I've had a million dollars in my life. At one time. In Alaska. 
I left Alaska having some substance to go to North Carolina and work in a church because I felt it was important. I could have been a multimillionaire in Alaska had I stayed with the equipment that I had and used it. Been no problem at all. I was already a millionaire. Now, a business partner betrayed me and took a lot of that, but that's a different story. But it was there, okay? And I had, a, had I retained what I came out of that with, it would have been no problem having millions of dollars. That would have been no problem at all. Because I'd already gone when I first got there from nothing to doing pretty well. So been there, done that. What does an old man need two or three or four or five million dollars for anyway? Too old to drink much, so being a drunk wouldn't help. I mean, yeah, I could buy a lot of le- a lot of booze with two, three million bucks. Can't chase women. That's illegal. Let's see what else is there. Isn't that what the rich men of this world do? Isn't that their thing? What else is there? Well, you can have a new car. You can have this. You can have some of those physical things. But I've had that. I've had many, many, many new vehicles in my life. You know what? After a few months, they don't smell new, and they got dirt in the floor. Dirt on them. I'm not about to betray you and do anything against you and run off and desert you. And I'm going to do my best to stay out of jail and not do anything that they could put me there for. So far I haven't, and believe me, they have tried. They've called the sheriff out here many times trying to get me in jail. And the sheriffs now hear from certain people, and they say, oh no, not again. They're still trying. We're here for a purpose. And that purpose isn't numbers of people. We don't need a fan club. And it's not money. It's to do God's work. But there's some people who attribute motives to me that I don't have. And they have motives to take over because they think they can do a better job. And that they ought to own this land. Some of them wanted to subdivide it and sell it off. Some want to just rule it and rule you. And raise your rent. And if they get in charge, I'll guarantee you that's what they do. Now, I'm trying to kind of talk to you here for a moment like David talked Solomon. Stand up. Be of good courage. Stand up against our enemies. Because they will take everything we have and they will put it to their own use, given a half a chance. And I could name some names who have filed court cases, who have threatened. They had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof. Whoever started it and whatever fruit's on it, let's get rid of it and take over, essentially. 
Cut him off from the land of living and forget him. Then Jeremiah says, But O Lord of hosts, that judges righteously, that tries the reins in the heart, let me see your vengeance on them, for unto you have I revealed my cause. So I've talked to you, Father. I've told you my motivations, what I want to do, what I need to do, what I'm here for. And he says, you take care of it. We're in the same position. You know what we're here for, Father? We're here to build your temple. We're here to serve you and be witnesses to the world that you are God. That's what we're here for. Take care of it. You've said you're going to bring peace in this place. Now, there's a process that has to go on in order for there to be peace. Get rid of the tailbearer and the strife ceases. Okay? So what does God say? Therefore, thus says the Lord of the men of Anatoth. Now, this is an end-time prophecy of the current day Anatoth. God gave me that name to use on this place on purpose. I did not read these scriptures and say, we're going to call this Anatoth because of this scripture. I did because Jeremiah was told to buy a field and I was instructed to buy a place for his people. And when I read about Jeremiah buying a piece of land for God's purpose, I looked up the word Anatoth and it said, in part, Answer, or the answer. This is the answer. And we looked and looked, and I looked for several years, actually, and then people who moved out here helped look to find a place that would be suitable that we could afford. And this place turned up. And some of the members said, Daryl will never approve this. They came out and saw it ahead of me. He would never bring us here. That was their opinion. So, I came out and looked at it, looked around a bit, and I said, I think this will work. Let's do it. Surprised them. It's what God had provided. And I have no doubt of that. You know, when I went to negotiate with the guy that owned it, was trying to sell it, I told the congregation, pray about this. Let's be sure it's what God wants. I'm going to go negotiate with him. And John Reidenbaugh had told me before I left Charlotte that if God gives us something, it has to be free or almost free. It needs to be given to us or almost given to us were his exact words. And I kept that in the back of my mind, that this had to be something that obviously came from God. And he had told me, go prepare a place for my people in a vision. So I said, okay, and I began to look diligently for a place and hadn't found one. And I knew it would be near Zion because he had said when he told me that, it's near here. And I was in northern Arizona, Beaverdam at the time, near here. I hadn't a clue. Been to Zion many times. Thought, That's a beautiful place. God's great creation. Didn't occur to me that it was the real Zion. So I looked in the Four Corners area. Didn't know how close to Zion it needed to be because I didn't know until later that Zion was the real place. That was in 94. 96 is when I learned about Zion. So we looked for 
until from 94 until 2002. I looked for a place. And then I said, let's be sure this is what God wants. Pray about it, that this negotiation go well. And I reminded them that John had said it needs to be given to us or almost given to us. Now, if you go out to buy bare land, and I sold quite a bit of it here and there, and some in Alaska, several pieces, and normally speaking, you took about 10% down in cash on a bare piece of land. If it had a house on it, it was a totally different ball game, and the bank was usually involved, not always, but some of my deals. But usually, I owned them free and clear, and I would ask for a 10% down, and I would do that even on a mobile home or a, a house. So I knew that that was kind of the going thing, with bare land especially, 10% down. Well, they were asking 300000 for this place. That's thirty grand. We didn't have thirty grand. I don't know whether all of us together at that time must have been close to a hundred of us meeting in Kanab. I don't know whether we could have come up if we had all emptied our wallets, if we could have come up with thirty grand. Because most were barely working or not working and on Social Security and, you know. So I says, ask that God be with this if this is what he wants us to have. So in my mind, having done a lot of land deals, I said, he's going to want at least 10% down, could be more. Uh, he's going to want a big payment. So a big down payment and a big payment. And what was the other thing? Oh, the interest rate. Normally on uh, bare land, it was standard back in those days to ask 10% interest. And that would have made the payment quite a lot higher. So I was looking at those parameters. 10% down, 10% interest, <coughs> and, a lar and the large down payment. So I go to him. And we introduced ourselves, sit down at his table, and the first thing he said before I had a chance to say anything was, I advertise this land for a certain amount, and he says, I've decided to give you a discount. Hmm. Nobody had ever done that before. If I was going to get a price lowered, I had to negotiate it and ask for it and pull on things to get a price lowered. You ever bought cars? Yeah, you got you got a jerk on him. No, he volunteered it first thing. I've lowered the price for you. He knocked off three hundred an acre, just like that. And then we talked a little bit more about did we really want it? And I said yes. And he says, well, I don't want to get hung out to dry on this thing. I'm going to need a substantial down payment, so you don't just come here and stay a little bit and then leave on me. I want you to have something invested in this to be sure you'll stay there. So I thought, oh boy, here it comes. Substantial down payment. No, we did interest first. He says, uh, well, I'll need interest on it. And I'm thinking, yeah, probably about 10%. I'm going to shoot for 8 try to get him down to 8 He says, I'm going to need a good interest on this, he says, I'd like to get five and a quarter. 
Am I going to ask him to come on down? Am I going to negotiate from there when he's already volunteered five and a quarter? I don't think so. It's dropped in my lap. A lot less than I had anticipated and a lot less than I was even going to negotiate for. So I'm dumbfounded. Then he says, I need this substantial down. I thought, oh, okay, here it is. Here's the other shoe going to drop now. He said, I, I really need a substantial down payment. He says, how about 5000 Now, this is a purchase of $300,000. And 10% is 30000 And he'd said substantial, which in my mind went probably more than normal. I said, I'm out of here. He said 5000 I didn't say a word. I just picked out my checkbook and wrote a check for 5000 bucks. It was almost given to us. You know? And then he says, well, we'll amortize it over 19, or, yeah, 19 years so the payment won't be too big for you. And it wasn't. We, we were able to handle it. It was almost given to us. Now, we had to pay a price, yeah. So did Jeremiah to buy Anatoth. But it was almost given. Okay. Therefore says the Eternal to the men of Anatoth that seek your life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Eternal. That's what they've told me. We don't want to hear your preaching anymore. Uh, don't prophesy to us. That you die not by our hand. If you keep on preaching, we're going to be after you. And they have been. Lawsuits, threats, call it a sheriff, everything. Therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them. For I will bring a evil upon the men of Anatoth, even the year of their visitation. I will visit them in a year, not in one year, but in a year I will do this. The year is coming, in other words, when he will do this. Now they've had space to repent. We have not tried to take anything against them. It's all been against me and you. But God says, they're all going to die. He will punish them. This is an end-time prophecy. It's talking about this place and now and those who are fighting you and me. Every one of them is going to die. You can go around here and see their houses. You know their names. They're all going to die. That's God's pronouncement of judgment. Is there a pattern here? I said, how do we get from here to Zechariah 14. So I took you to Kings. I could have taken you to Joshua. I could have taken you some other places in this book. How many do we need? That if you're going to have peace, and God says He will bring peace here. He said that, established it. I will bring peace in this place. And you have to get rid of those who are not peaceful and who will not repent of their anger and their warring nature, and you have to get rid of them so that the strife ceases. So it's a pattern that God has established all along. 
when he wanted to reestablish peace on this earth, what did he do? He sent Noah. Over a hundred year period, he built the ark. And then he floated off, and it became very peaceful. There was not a dissenting voice. Utterly peaceful. All the violent, all the enemies of God, all the enemies of Noah were dead in the flood. End of story. Now it started over before long because Satan and human nature are the same. Now before this is all done, God is going to get rid of every human being who in any way rebels against him or will not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and their eyes and their tongues will consume out of their heads. I'm on the clock. But he will have peace in his kingdom. And he will do whatever is necessary. And he is going to have peace throughout eternity in his kingdom because Satan is ultimately going to be banned entirely. And every enemy that will not repent and bow before God is going to go into the lake of fire and be destroyed and never be again. That is the process that God uses. And he is going to use it right here, just like he has everywhere else. Because if there's going to be peace here, those who are not peaceful have to go. And that's what he's saying. It's the pattern. It's the way God works. And it's going to happen right here. So, I'm over time. Let's stop there.